touch with uh, Feldegal Yutta Dhammo, uh, our friend um, Daniel did great uh, job. Thank you. Uh, so I'd like to invite him to um, make a brief introduction about Feldegal. Can I do from here over there? Do you have a sound? No. Is the mic on? Yeah. Yeah, can you check from the picture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you. I'll just hold it. So, hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you as well to the Long Island Buddhist Meditation Center and this special event with uh, Bhante Yutadamo here. So, I'm just going to give you a, a brief introduction about him. So, he was born Noah Greenspoon in uh, Canada. Um, he went to McMaster University to his study initially, but eventually he then instead decided to travel to Thailand. While in Thailand, he visited a um, temple called Wat Fradatu Sri Cham Tong, and that's where he became interested in Buddhism, and he in fact ordained there in 2001. He then returned to Canada to continue his studies and he eventually gained a degree in uh, Indian religions and Sanskrit. <laughs> That's what your website said. <laughs> I kind of glosses over the fact that I never got my degree. Uh, oh. For the record, I never got anything. Okay, well, he got he got honorary degree from Long Island Buddhist Meditation Center. <laughs> okay, anyway... Uh, in 2003, he returned to Thailand to study where he met his eventual um, teacher, um, Ajahn Tong Siri Mangalo. Um, nowadays, he's very active on the internet. You'll see his many YouTube videos, including series involving um, explanations of the Dhammapada, um, other videos involving many other different topics, um, questions and answers with a monk, um, a program called Monk Radio, which has callers um, call into the radio or YouTube video and ask various questions about Buddhism in general. He's been teaching meditation in countries such as Thailand, Sri Lanka, the USA, and Canada ever since uh, 2003 in various Vipassana meditation centers. And he's also now the president of this organization, Siri Mangalo International, which is in charge of basically maintaining and spreading the teachings of his teacher, Ajahn Tong Siri Mangalo. Um, so a few other things. He has um, a number of books, the most recent of which is called How to Meditate, A Beginner's Guide to Peace, where he goes over his and Ajahn Siri Mangalo's um, methods of meditation. And now he's stopping at the Long Island Buddhist Meditation Center because of his trip down the East Coast. He started in Canada. He was recently at the Assumption College uh, a few days ago. And this is his stop as he moves on to Florida. And he's currently, at, he's currently staying at the monastery at Stony Creek in Ontario. And so without further ado, I would like to welcome uh, Yudadamo Ibiku to speak for us. Thank you.
right? So, the um, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Hamdro, Nanda Hamdro, and Sadajiva Hamdro for giving up your seat for me. <laughs> um, I'm especially honored to be here because of the nature of this center and the nature of the audience. I was coming here to this Sri Lankan Buddhist Vihara expecting a room full of Sri Lankan people, which is nice, but um, not quite so special. This is not Sri Lankan Buddhist Vihara. But this is not a Sri Lankan <laughs> Buddhist Vihara. Um, it was my mistake. <laughs> I'm just explaining my my expectations coming here, telling everyone, oh, I'm going to see Bhante Nanda at his monastery. I assumed it was something it wasn't. But the reason I think it's special is because now we have native, most likely almost 100% um, converts or people who weren't brought up in the Buddhist meditative tradition and have since taken it up. So this isn't something that you're here because of your culture, which makes it a special kind of a Buddhist gathering, you know, because that's how Buddhism started. In India, it was, there were no Buddhists. When the Buddha started out, he had to start fresh. And so he was dealing with Brahmins, and he was dealing with ascetics, and lots of people who had other views, and who grew up outside of, or who grew up in a culture that was in many ways uh, contrary to what the Buddha was going to teach. So there, was, there was no teachings before the Buddha on um, the understanding of ultimate reality. Now, the teachings at the time were on the understanding of the soul, the self, God. They were on the practice of tranquility meditation. But there was no teaching on the practice of insight meditation, which is to see clearly the nature of reality. And, and it sounds kind of um, awesome or, or super mundane, but, but, but actually the point is that no one was focusing on what the, the, what the Buddha focused on was the mundane, and that's what people were missing. So there was very little, maybe nothing on the, uh, the, the nature of experience, because no one was able to break up experience the way the Buddha was. And so what you had was a lot of diversity of views. And I think that's what we, we, come, we come to this with in the West, and so that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. Now, I know we normally start with a meditation, so I'd like to propose a compromise and give a sort of a guided meditation. In, in Asia, when you give a talk, well, in Thailand when you give a talk, actually in Sri Lanka, the there's usually questions, people throw out questions and they interrupt the monk and tell the monk what to say. And so <laughs> the monk will, will say something and the lay people will say, yes. 
it's quite refreshing. But in Thailand, when you give a talk, normally everyone is supposed to be quiet, and the monk doesn't look at you. There's no eye contact. So everyone will close their eyes. And in the tradition that I follow, they would even suggest that you could meditate on the sound of the, the monk's voice or the teacher's voice. So I'm going to ask everyone to close your eyes. Let's just start out meditating because you've got to sit here anyway. Oh, so might as well make it totally worth it. Because I might just go off on a ramble and you think, oh, what am I doing? Well, at least you've got something to bide the time while I ramble on. And when it's interesting, well, you can pay attention. You've got the best of both worlds. So the practice we are, the, the, the focus of our efforts in Buddhism is meditation, right? Everyone comes here because it's a meditation center. I assume not many people are coming here just for the food, as good as it may be. But the funny thing about meditation is that you get... You, you, can, you can say the word meditation and it, it means a hundred different things to a hundred different people. And so it's important to understand what we mean by meditation. And in fact, there's some criticism of the idea of just coming to Buddhism for meditation because we want to say that it's more than that. Right? So if you came here tonight drunk or stoned, and you say, well, that's okay, meditation will fix me. Yeah, let's go and meditate. I've had people in Thailand, they would come to the monasteries and bring their guitars and set up and, and sing and dance or play, play music while they were meditating. And furthermore, bring, bring marijuana or drugs. And, and There's nothing wrong with music. I'm not going to go that far. But it's quite clear that during a meditation retreat, there's some pretty serious... Uh, rules and regulations that, for your own benefit, you, you, you do best to keep. Meaning that it's more than just sitting down to meditate. You can't just live your life as you like and then insert meditation in there. It's kind of like you take a seed and you want to plant it, so you just throw it anywhere. Some of it fall, some fall in sand and some fall in, on rock, and then you wonder why it doesn't grow. You need the soil of, of uh, morality and, and the cage. You know, when you, when you grow produce, you generally need a tomato cage or a, a fence or something to, for your, your produce to grow on. So the framework of right view is also very important. Because if you start out right view... We all know from the Eightfold Noble Path, it's the first one. So you can say it's the first thing the Buddha taught. Remember when he went to the five ascetics after he became enlightened? He went back to find them. His two teachers had passed away, couldn't teach them. So he went to find these five ascetics, and after he'd straightened them out, in fact, you could say the first thing he did was straighten out their view because they had the wrong view that torturing yourself was the path to become enlightened. Right? That's a kind of a wrong view. 
the idea that you could, by the sheer will of uh, self of repression and 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 self torture, you could be you could somehow it somehow has some connection to enlightenment. But they they miss the point really, and we often miss the point in meditation. Why do most people come to meditate? And say it's got to be seventy, eighty percent of the people, not all, but the reason most people come to meditate is just to feel calm. They want to jump ahead and and get the results, you know, get the fruit. And so we take kind of a shortcut and just chill out in the meditation, try to repress all the bad stuff. If you're thinking, just try to avoid the thoughts. If you feel pain, we'll try to get more comfortable. Leave all your problems behind, transcend above them, leave them behind, and enter into a happy place. Feel calm. And so it's kind of the same in the opposite direction that the, the five ascetics were attempting. Right? They knew their goal. Their goal was to be free from the suffering that they found inherent in sensual pleasures. Right? Most people don't get that far. And so in India there were two sides. There was the people who said, well, sensual pleasure, that sounds nice. Well, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Life is but a game. And then there were the people who said, mm, don't buy it, because you who indulge in sensual pleasure, you cry and you wail and you moan when you don't get what you want. And you actually suffer more for your indulgence. In the end, you just become like a hungry ghost, right? always hungry, always wanting, never enough. The Buddha said it could rain gold and it would never be enough. It would still wouldn't be enough for one person. There's no fire-like craving because it doesn't stay just in one place. The fire leaps from the grass to the trees to the... Uh, To the brush and goes from one thing to another and craving as well. Once you've got it inside, it goes on and on and never ceases. And so they go the other way. They say, well, to be free from this, we're going to stamp out all of our craving. But again, they take a shortcut. They have this idea that they can just force it down and just torture ourselves. It's kind of silly, really, because the whole point in avoiding sensual pleasures is to avoid the suffering from them. So instead, you just skip right to the suffering. Not really the brightest move. So this is wrong view. It's a type of wrong view that most of us, when we look at we we, we think of as kind of ridiculous. But imagine if you were trying to find a, a path out of sensual uh, desire. The first thing, of course, that you think of would be to try to avoid it, to run away from it. And so this is what many religious people even today do, religious people in other traditions who don't even maybe have the benefit of any meditation, would be constantly praying for the, <laughs> the cravings and the desires to go away.
trying to repress them, self-flagellation in certain traditions. And so that this the Buddha straightened them out. The middle way is the straight way, not crooked to the left or crooked to the right, not indulgent and not uh, repressing the, the indulgence. And then he explained what he's doing. You know, he explained what is the middle way. Well, the first thing is right view. You need view that is straight. You need to straighten your view. So everyone here, I think, uh, we're, here, we're here for the meditation. So we have that already. What I'd like to just add is, let's talk a little bit about making sure our meditation is in the right way and our practice is in the right way. And so the Buddha, in the Book of Fives of the Anguttara Nikaya, he's gave five items that he said would support right view and, and allow our, our right view to lead us to, allow our view to lead us to Nibbana, to freedom. And these five things are morality. This is the obvious one that I'm going to talk about, right? can't just meditate. You need something first. But number two, suttang, which is uh, you need to, to listen. Number three, sakacha, which means conversation. Asking questions, discussing the teachings, discussing your practice. Number four, samatha, which means tranquility. And number five, vipassana, which means insight. So I'm going to talk about these things and try to make it a little bit meditative. So for those of you who maybe don't have so much experience in meditation, you can get a new, fresh look at how to meditate based on right view according to me. Hopefully according to the Buddha. So silang, if you want right view, because yeah? we all think we have right view, right? <laughs> Everybody thinks, and they're so keen, we're so keen to share that right view with others. It became a problem so that in postmodern, the postmodern era, everyone just sort of gave up and said, well, okay, you, you take your right view and I'll take my right view. And everybody, if it's right for you, it's right view. Which isn't exactly the Buddhist perspective on things. We consider truth to be absolute. Right for you isn't good enough. It has to be right, right, like truly right. Because right for you often just means, I believe it's right. This is what I believe to be true. I believe this, I believe that. That's all it boils down to in the end, so it's just another statement of faith. If a person says, I've seen for myself that this is true, and if they really have, if they're not just lying to themselves, that's what we mean by right view. So it's an aspect of reality. Something you can investigate and see for yourself. So if you want that, you have to start with morality. It's really the, the basis. So if, as I said, if you're drunk or stoned, not much chance. If you're immoral, 
If you're a murderer or a thief, an adulterer or a sex fiend, maniac, if you're a liar or a cheat, all of these things are going to weigh heavily on your mind. At, the, at Assumption College, a man said to me, he said he didn't understand this whole morality thing because he said, well, a person who murders, they, they could be quite happy that they got away with murder. And it was quite shocking to hear that. I said to him, well, you know, when I meditate, I, I, I think about maybe I said something stupid to someone in the morning and that just eats away at me for hours. I can't imagine what it would be like if I had hurt or even killed someone. Our deeds, they... The Buddha said they uh, envelop us like a blanket when we're sitting alone. And so when you sit down to meditate, meditate. that's really one of the great things about meditation is that it's a substitute for that last moment of your life when everything flashes before your eyes. Right? If, you, if you haven't meditated, when, when you die, they say your whole life flashes before your eyes. like a roulette table and it spins and spins and then whatever one it lands on that's your rebirth sometimes it's just a crapshoot you're not sure where you're going to be reborn there's a man came up to me and asked me yesterday or the yesterday no we're at the bus station and he's just walks up to me and said, man, I've had this question for weeks and now I see you standing here and I just have to ask. I thought maybe he'd seen me answering questions on the internet, but I don't think so. And he said, I was adopted. I'm, I'm, I was born in India, but I was adopted by American parents and I've lived in America my whole life. And he said, I've always felt that there was like I, he said, he, the words he used was cheated my karma. Like I felt like, like I should have been an Indian person. I should have grown up in India. And the karma can often be like that. For a person who's non-meditative, the last moment, it's like anything. If you, if you make a, any decision with a panicked mind, it can change your whole life, right? Making rash decisions can have disastrous consequences. The worst of these is when you die. So it's not, it's, don't, don't be sure that just because you're a good person. There's a story in the time of the Buddha of this queen who was a devout Buddhist. She was one of the most wonderful people, but she had committed an egregious offense. Well, egregious. She'd done something that weighed heavily on her mind. It wasn't that bad, but she felt so guilty about it. What, what happened was she was in the she was in the washroom this queen she was in the washroom once and the royal dog came in and started doing something and uh, she kind of let it continue and and the king saw this and he, he he shouted he yelled at her scolded her he said you vile woman how can you cavort like that with a dog this is in the, in the scriptures, I'm not making this up. And 
So she tries to get out of it. She says, oh, king, what are you talking about? He said, I saw you. He said, oh, no, that's just the nature of the bathroom. That bathroom has some weird lighting effect that uh, anyone who goes in there, it appears that they're, they're having, they're fooling around with, with animals. And so she says, look, why don't you go in? And he goes in and she says, oh, king, why are you doing that with that goat? And... Uh, And he believes her. Anyway, it's a horrible story, really. But that's what, she, what weighs heavily on her mind. And, and she's such a good person. But when she dies, she thinks about that one event. And as a result, when she dies, she's born in a bad place. In hell, they say. And for seven days, she's like torturing herself because of the guilt of that evil deed. And it it's not, wasn't even that evil a deed. It was just she felt so guilty about it that it led her to, to a state of nightmarish suffering. And the king kept trying to ask the Buddha about it, and the Buddha kept putting him off until the seventh day. He finally, he just came out and asked the Buddha, and by that time she'd been born in heaven. So he said, where, so I keep meaning to ask you, where, where was the queen born? Oh, she was born in heaven, of course. Oh, of course, she was such a wonderful person. Anyway, as I was saying, the wonderful thing about meditation is it allows us to circumvent that so that we deal with all of these guilt and, and all of the baggage that we carry around. You feel this when you meditate, right? All of your guilt and all of your shame and, and all of your anger and hatred, at, well, anger and aversion towards others who have hurt you, all of this comes up when we meditate. It allows us to deal with it here and now, to, to, to become comfortable with it. So really people have this idea that karma is something that, that floats over your head like a dark cloud of doom that you can never escape. And well, to some extent that's true because there's external factors that we can't change. Our rebirth is very much more uh, affected by our our minds. Right? So well, we might have to worry about people scolding us because of our bad deeds or, or attacking us. If our mind is pure and if we re we've really come to terms with our evil, our bad deeds, the things that we've done to hurt others or to hurt ourselves, then we can die with a peaceful mind. More important for our topic tonight, we can meditate with a, pure, with a peaceful mind. Meditation is very difficult for someone who doesn't have morality, as we should all be able to tell from our practice. Any of the things that we've done that are uh, antithetical to the meditation, we'll know right away what they are. So I don't have to tell you this is wrong, that's wrong, bad, bad, evil, evil. When you sit down to meditate, you see all of this. And you realize that, ho hopefully, I can prevent some of that, from ha some of the testing from going on. So you don't have to go out and kill someone and see how that feels to meditate on. Or go and, hey, let's go and try heroin and see what it's like to, to, to meditate. You don't have to go to the extremes. Morality is a, a good way to guard your mind so that you don't become unable to meditate. But more important here, on an ultimate level, morality is this guarding of the mind. 
bringing the mind back to the present moment. The effort that we undertake to prevent the mind from going out, going away from reality. And in many ways that starts with mindfulness. Mindfulness, I'd say, you, you, could, you could call the, the thread that runs through the, the necklace. If the Eightfold Noble Path, or if the training of the Path of Purification was a, a necklace, a pearl necklace, mindfulness would be this thread that runs through it. Mindfulness, the Buddha said, is always useful. Mindfulness is ever useful, O monks. If you don't believe me, believe the Buddha. If you don't believe the Buddha, try it yourself. So I'm going to give a, a little bit of instruction. You don't have to follow my technique, but you could if you like. And I encourage those who haven't meditated before to try it. It's a simple technique of reminding yourself about the present moment. It's a means of cultivating morality, a means of, of guarding the mind. The technique is to just remind yourself of the experience that's in front of you. So if you're sitting here, you could just remind yourself about the sitting position. Say to yourself, sitting. You can use that as a mantra. Just keep saying to yourself, sitting, sitting, sitting. And you'll see that it brings, keeps your mind with the sitting posture. Keeps your mind from wandering, but also keeps your mind from judging the experience. There's no room for anything else, which is important. This is morality, right? Keep your mind from judging. Keep your mind from giving rise to defilement. Guard your mind. Otherwise there, there will arise liking, disliking, there will arise conceit or wrong view. Right? Normally we have the idea this is my body and I'm uh, too fat, too thin, too tall, too short, too old, too young, this, that. My body's not perfect in so many ways, or maybe my body's perfect and I feel very proud of my body. All of that is based on wrong views and conceit and desires and aversion. So when we stay in the present, we do away with all of that. Just sitting. And this is very much according to the Buddha's teaching for anyone who has doubts. Buddha said, Nisinova, Nisinomhi. Nisinomhi means I am sitting. Nisinomhi ti bhajanati. Bhajanati. When you're sitting, just know I am sitting. In English, we just shorten that down to sitting. Because it doesn't, because I am sitting doesn't sound as nice as Nisinomhi. So we just say sitting. It doesn't matter the words, it's just a means of reminding yourself. In Thai they say, Nang no. Whatever the words, just so that you know that you're sitting.
once you have morality, that's when you should start to listen to the Dhamma, start to hear the Dhamma. So we have to start at morality and get everyone in the right frame of mind. And so really the, the best way to listen to a Dhamma talk is, is as a guided meditation. Anyone who's ever read the suttas, the teachings of the Buddha, you'll notice at the end, there's a little blurb at the end about who became enlightened while they were listening to the Buddha's teaching. Quite often someone would become a sotapanna or an arahant, become enlightened. They would realize nibbana, they would realize nirvana while listening to a talk. The only way they can do that is if they have sila, if they have morality. So that they can understand correctly what is being said. And, and apply it to reality. Because it's only through understanding of reality that you can become enlightened. It's not through force of mind or effort or without wisdom, without understanding. You can't, you, in, in Buddhism, enlightenment requires understanding, wisdom. That's a key distinction. So what that means in, in ordinary terms is that if you really want to find true peace, for those of us who come to meditation just looking for calm and peace, well, if you want true peace and calm, you can't take the shortcut around wisdom. You can't take the shortcut around your problems. If you don't understand the problem, it will never go away for good. You'll never be truly free from it. And so to become truly free from suffering, we, we have to get our minds straight. This starts with morality. Now, the thing about sutta, about, about listening to the teaching, as you can see, it also directs your mind. So if the teacher is skilled, if it's the Buddha teaching, of course, then you have a, a constant straightening of your mind, straightening of your views. Even when I explain to you to watch your body sitting, you can see how that affects you, listening. It's like hypnosis. The, the, hypnosis works by suggestion, and the person has to be open to it but they respond. And so when I explained to you to, do, to say sitting, I'm assuming many of you actually did it and were able to see that your mind changed as a result. Suddenly your mind was aware of something very clearly in the present moment. You can try it with, my, with the sound of my voice. Instead of trying to comprehend or, or think about what I'm saying, you can just listen to it as sound reaching your ear and watch how that works. It's actually quite uncomfortable because you wind up anticipating the sound. This is why songs are so comfortable for us. Why we like this is apparently a scientific fact that they are, that they've studied and understood that the reason we like songs is because we're able to anticipate. And so when a song when it changes from to the chorus or to the bridge, it excites us because we're surprised by it. But it's it's the right balance of surprise. My voice isn't that right balance. So if you actually focus on the sound of my voice, it can become quite disturbing. Right? You know the Buddha talked about impermanent suffering and non-self. These are the key, really. You're going to see that just by listening to my voice. It's exciting because it's right there. Most Buddhists don't know this, don't realize this. My voice that you're hearing right now can lead you to enlightenment, but not, not specifically because you're listening to the words specifically because you understand that the you understand the sound as impermanent suffering and non-self. 
Impermanent means it's uncertain. Suffering means that, that when you cling to it, when you try, because it's uncertain, when you cling to it and try to expect and, and have some expectations about it, when there's any kind of attachment to the voice, you like it when I say good things, you don't like it when I say certain other things. Those expectations lead to suffering. And non-self means that you can't control it. It's intellectually, you know you can't control my voice, but, but the mind keeps uh, suffering continuously because of this fact. Because it has to experience something that's out of its control. And this is why we love tranquility meditation, why we love the television, why we love things that are, are controllable, are constant, are things we can, we can have expectations about. You can sit down and watch a movie and be pretty sure that by the end you're going to feel happy. Right? It's something controlled. Life is quite a bit different. You can't be sure that you're going to have the same happy feeling at the end of it. Reality is different from the movies which is a problem for us, because you don't want my voice to be unpleasant. You don't want this sitting here. There are certain experiences that you don't, you can't bear to have arise. Pain, for example. So this kind of explanation, here's an example of an explanation that allows you to, become, to come closer to reality, closer to understanding, closer to right view, a right understanding about things, instead of clinging to them, judging, expecting, needing them to be in a certain way. Sutta, just listening, can allow you to open up to reality and become more impartial and objective, open-minded about things non-judgmental. So focusing on the sound, we would just, there was one teacher in Bangkok, in Thailand, he would always say this, he'd say, okay, listen, sit down, meditate, and listen to the sound at your ear, say to yourself, hearing, hearing. It was like he didn't even care if they were going to listen to his talk. Much more important was that they would practice meditation. It's kind of neat to do, actually, because you do find that you still understand what's being said. But you also get a visceral uh, understanding or, or, or experiential realization of the way things are. Impermanence, impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. So sutta is the second important quality. Number three, sakacha. Unfortunately, it's going to have to wait till the end. But once you've started meditating, we're going to have to have a period where you ask about your practice. Because probably sitting here, there are some things you doubt. There's always people in the crowd who, who maybe disagree with the technique or have, have some, uh, maybe a, a, pre, pre, a prejudice. Not exactly prejudice, but... Uh, Something that they they believe they understand. I've had people who they come into the talk. For example, Christians or or people from other religions who come into the meditation center with 
uh, ideas about uh, the the technique that 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 inhibits them from attaining right view, right understanding about reality, whatever it may be. Maybe they're even not there to listen to the to to the practice. Anyway, so afterwards, maybe tomorrow we can have a chance to meet with meditators one one on one, which is the best, really. The Buddha did this after his monks had practiced meditation for five days. Uh, no, after he gave them the first talk, then for five days they meditated together, and they had to. The Buddha had to one by one. Uh, fix their problems. So, so much more common, obviously, are, are meditation problems. You get the idea of the meditation, but something comes up and you're not sure exactly how to deal with it. And so it's like a knot it's, you're stuck on, and it's the meditation teacher's duty to uh, help you untie the knot so you can continue on. That's number three. Number four and number five. Take them together for a second to just talk about them. Samatha and Vipassana. Several times the Buddha mentioned both of these and one reason for talking about both of them is to highlight the difference between them, as I think I already have in, to some extent. Right view. Uh, again, there's the idea that it can somehow be attained through tranquility alone. Because there, there are two types of meditation. There's the type of meditation that only leads to tranquility. And why does it do that? It does that because it doesn't deal with ultimate reality. For example, uh, loving-kindness. It's a great meditation. It helps calm your mind, it helps bring peace and it helps solve a lot of the problems in our lives, in relationships and so on. But it deals with beings, it deals with individuals. So it can never, it doesn't help us understand anger, it doesn't help us understand delusion. It's just a means of uh, training our minds to be softer, to be gentler. So you see, it's something that's quite useful, but still is dealing with concepts, dealing with, with individuals, not dealing with experience or reality. Meditation on the Buddha, for example, and meditation on death. Meditation on death is one that the Buddha enjoined us to practice every day. And yet if you're focusing on the death of a being, it doesn't allow you to understand your the workings of your mind. It only All it does is calm the mind, tranquilizes the mind. So this is why there are these two, two aspects, tranquility and insight. Because the second type of meditation, it may calm the mind, it should calm the mind. It focuses the mind and tranquilizes the mind, but it does so naturally. So when you focus on your body, when I have you say to yourself, sitting, sitting, or a common one that we use is the stomach, because the only movement in the body when you're sitting still should be the, the, the breath. So you'll find that your chest or your stomach moves, and if you're, if, if you're uh, tranquil, you'll find that your abdomen will rise and fall. So that's the body, it's physical. 
the coarse movement of the body. There's nothing else to compare to it. Because it's so coarse, it makes a good object of contemplation. So you can just say to yourself, rising when it rises, and falling when it falls. Either way. There's many other objects you can use. If you're feeling pain, I notice everyone's being quite helpful tonight, helping us keep the walls up. It's very kind of you. Um, usually because we have lots of pain when we sit. So if you sit up straight, if you're not helping us keep up the walls, you find that you get back pain and you get leg pain. Even so, eventually you'll find pain in the legs, maybe pain in the head. So pain is a good meditation object. It's one of those things that we come here to be free from. Yeah. Many, most people expect that eventually the meditation gets to the point where they don't have any pain, and it certainly can. But pain can also be a great means to become enlightened. In fact, the Buddha said it's one of the great ways to become enlightened is that you, you, you be, you're free from the pain at the same time as you're free from defilement. But the pain uh, is an uh, impetus for you to become enlightened. Like there was once a monk in the time of the Buddha, he, was, he had some past karma with some lay people and they sent somebody to kill him. Some, sent some people to kill him, and so he, he said, well, come back in the morning, I'm still meditating. And of course they didn't go for that. They said, give you time to run away? No way, we're gonna, we can't do that. And he, so he told them, he said, well, there's no, I'm not going to run away, I just want to meditate for the rest of the night. And then you can come back and kill me in the morning. And they said, what, what reassurance can you give us that you won't run away? So he picked up a rock, big rock and broke both of his legs. And then he said, how's that for reassurance? And he meditated all night on the pain, became an arahant, became enlightened when, before morning. It's just a story, but it's one that's worth telling because experience shows that that's... that, that it's an apt example of the, of the way things work. Pain is one of these things that we have very, very strong feelings about, strong attachment to, aversion uh, from, which is a kind of attachment. Right? We give it power because of our aversion to it, because we don't want it to have any power. The, the, the aversion to it gives it power. When you become objective about it, when you just focus on the pain and say to yourself, pain, pain, it's a wonderful thing. See people going for massages and, and the chiropractor and even uh, acupuncture, acupressure, taking headache medication. Most people have the wrong idea about suffering. They think it's something you can just do away with, like with a magic pill. And the same with meditation. You think meditation's just going to take away all your troubles. 
There are meditations that can do that, but they don't teach you about your troubles. They don't solve your problems. They don't give you the answers you're looking for, the answers you need. Understanding your pain does. Once you become the master of your pain and understand that it's just an experience, it's just pain, then it has no power over you. So to do this, we just remind ourselves, pain, 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 and we're free from it. For people who are uh, stuck on some kind of addiction to pleasure and find that it's destroying their lives, that it's interfering with their regular uh, functioning. The same thing goes for, for pleasure. If you want to be free from this addiction, you have to focus on the pleasure and come to be objective about it. See that pleasure is not wrong, it's not something to feel guilty about. But it's also nothing to write home about. It's nothing special or wonderful. Pleasure is just an experience. And once you're clear and, and uh, open-minded about it, you become free from its power over you. You can feel it, you can experience pleasure, you can experience pain for what they are. And you can experience the full spectrum of reality without reacting to it. The same goes with thoughts. Good thoughts or bad thoughts can destroy you. Hmm? Much of our problems in the world, in our lives, are actually not, don't have anything to do directly with the, with the nature of our lives and have everything to do with the nature of our minds. The fact that we're obsessing over the world. We think that our problems will go will will somehow be solved if we just keep thinking about them. If we just keep worrying about them. If I worry about my children then they'll they'll suddenly be good. Right? If I worry about my job or if I worry about my family, if I if I stress over it, somehow that's gonna fix things. It's almost as though we think that. It's um, it's a uh, an eye opener when we find ourselves in the meditation practice, letting go of our problems and watching them dissipate and disappear. As a monk, you have this quite viscerally because there are days where you don't even get any food to eat. Uh, there, there, there was once when I was stranded in a city with no money, no phone, no connections. My ride hadn't picked me up and I sat there for an hour and I was just like, well, maybe this is it. <laughs> maybe this is the end of the road. It's quite an eye-opener. At first you get all upset and stressed about it. And then when you sit down and meditate, Wow, there's still just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. That's all there is. Nothing, nothing worse than that. So, nothing I can't deal with. But life is like that. The monks just see it much clearer sometimes. Or people who take on a, a, a 
specific way of life, like the monastic life. But in, our, in everyone's life this sort of thing happens. And we have choice. We can stress about it, worry about it. Or we can become objective and understand it. I remember once I was lost up on a mountain in Thailand. And it was the most curious thing because I panicked. And as soon as I panicked, I lost my way. I got lost. I had no idea where I was. Sat down and said, look, you're not getting anywhere. You've got to be mindful. And as soon as I got my mindfulness back, I knew the way to go. And I watched myself do this about three times. <laughs> Panic and suddenly I'm lost. Mindful and suddenly I know exactly where I am. It was quite incredible to watch. You see, you don't, you don't help yourself by clinging to things. You don't actually benefit from it in any way. We don't realize how hot it is, how much of a fever it is, how intoxicating it is, until we've actually had a clear mind, until we've actually seen things as they are. And that's what the idea is here, just remind yourself. It's not a problem, it's just a thought. And so with thoughts as well, we just remind ourselves, thinking, thinking, thinking. And you say, oh yeah, it's just a thought, it's gone already. And just reminding yourself, that was only a thought, it wasn't. Because otherwise the next thing to come is the freaking out, the worrying, the liking, the disliking. If you're not mindful, it leads to such problems. All the emotional baggage that comes out. And once the emotional baggage comes out, well, what do we do then? Honestly, what the Buddha said, even, even the emotional baggage, the stuff that's causing the problems, even that, we have to have an open mind towards. People who are stressed or have anger issues or addiction problems, depression problems, anxiety problems. Actually, ha the only way to be free from them as well is to be objective about them, objective about our partiality, because it's a chain. It doesn't matter where you catch it. Whatever is right here and now, you have to break it at that moment. So if you have liking or wanting, clinging, you have to remind yourself. It's only an emotion. Remind yourself so you don't go the next step. Right? Anger, so I'm going to hurt someone. No. If you just catch the anger and are objective about it, then there's no need to go out and hurt someone. If you're bored, suppose you're sitting in a meditation hall and someone's giving a talk for, it seems like forever, and he just doesn't stop. And so you feel bored, or anxious, or uh, agitated, want to just get up and run, around, run away. You better be careful, because it can snowball become unbearable until you 
well, it causes great suffering. So the same thing, we just remind ourselves of the experience. Liking, liking, disliking, bored, bored. Anxious, anxious, afraid, depressed. If you're tired, you can say tired, tired. If you're restless, you can say restless. Worried, worried, confused. These are all the hindrances. These are all the things that are getting in our way. Mental hindrances. They hinder your success, your progress, your mental development. They prevent you from living your life in peace and happiness. All this mental baggage. So how do we deal with it? Become objective about it. Remind yourself. When you're anxious, it's only anxiety. I always tell this story. There was this woman on the plane... I taught this to, she said, for 35 years, when we went up in the plane, she held on to her seat like she was going to, like, like, and wouldn't let go. And she said, for 35 years, I've, I've been scared to death of taking, of flying. Every time I get in the plane, I freak out. And so I explained it to her, and she was so skeptical that I just said, look, you know, I could explain it, I could try to convince you of the truth of what I'm saying, but why don't you just try it and see. Just remind yourself, afraid, afraid. And she did it, and she, when we landed, she said, that's the first time in 35 years I wasn't afraid at all. So if you have doubts about whether this kind of thing actually works, or you can actually just remind yourself, ask you to try it and see. Quite incredible, quite, it's like a magic trick. You have these magic words. What's the magic word? The magic word is whatever reminds yourself about the experience. So we have this train coming, and maybe that causes some upset. But let's all meditate on the train instead. Hearing, and if you like it or dislike it, disliking. find not only do you not get upset at the train, but suddenly your mind get, gets this clarity to it. And you get a taste of what it means to be invincible. I love this word invincible because it's it's so much a, a good description of what we're talking about. We're always looking for a fix, a way to avoid our, a way to get away from our problems. We don't dare to think that we could be invincible to them. That it's possible to become invincible so that it doesn't matter what problems confront, you're confronted with. And that's the key here. Is that actually through this meditation, it doesn't matter what you're confronted with. You can deal with anything. So that's the, um, the distinction there between tranquility, meditation that just makes you calm, and meditation that helps you understand reality. This is what I've gone through you, with you, 
is called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of them. This is the method that we use to apply the four satipatthana or foundations of mindfulness. When, when going, he knows walking. When walking, he knows walking. When sitting, no sitting. Let seeing just be seeing. Let hearing just be hearing. So by reminding ourselves, it's just seeing, it's just hearing. We create a clear thought and we keep a clear mind. And we're able to free ourselves from wrong view, from misunderstandings, from all kinds of beliefs. Whenever anyone says to you, I believe this or believe that, you should just nod, yourself, nod your head and say, that's nice, because it's meaningless. Unless you understand it for yourself, unless it has some basis in reality. This is the understanding of what right view means. Right view doesn't mean you believe the things I say. Right view means your view is in line with reality. You've actually seen reality. It's kind of amazing, really. Because I could be saying all this, but if you hadn't meditated, you'd just think of me as some other teacher teaching some other religious philosophy. But when you taste reality, when you sit here and you taste that, the, the clarity of listening to the train go by, clarity of knowing that you're, sit knowing that you're sitting, clarity of the pain, the clarity of the liking, the disliking, the boredom, whatever. Then you understand what I mean. You understand what the Buddha meant by right view. The understanding of impermanent suffering, non-self. So you don't cling to anything. You don't cling to things as stable or satisfying or controllable. You don't try to fix your problems. You try to let go of them and understand them. Because once you understand, you can live your life no, anyway. You can go back to work. If you understand the, way, the reason why people are the way they are, you understand what's happening. When someone's yelling at you, you feel sorry for them because you say, oh, I know what that's like to be so angry. <laughs> I really feel for you. The person's yelling at you and calling you all sorts of names, and yeah, I've been there. <laughs> the way you approach things is quite differently. So, I think I've talked for a while. I don't know how long that was, but time is at seven forty-four. Maybe I'll open it up for questions, and then uh, if there's no questions, we can just meditate. So if anyone has any questions, just uh, raise your hand so we can see you. So sit back there, you have a question for me now. Yeah. You're not going to hear her anyway because the mic's over here. Oh, uh, you won't hear? No. Uh, you might as well just stay on me and I'll like repeat the question or something. Right. Otherwise people are going to be afraid to ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. With restlessness, we have there's, a, there's a, a real reason for having restlessness, and that um, is to run from danger or to flee from something uncomfortable. 
like fire, touching fire, pulling the hand back, and a lion chasing us, running from that. And um, so there is, there are real threats, but I, I know that there are imagined threats. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I wonder about the difference between the two, between the real and the imagined. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 um the difference between the physical and the mental it's it's um enticing to want to it's uh I can't think of the right word. Science is um uh, Intoxicating, I don't think that's the right word either, but um, we want to, it sounds good to think like that, and, and, and we've actually been brought up to think like this, that we are biological organisms, uh, and there are evolutionary reasons for everything, and it seems very, very close to, to reality, because you can do experiments that show what your sort of thing that you're saying. It's actually evolutionary, right? We've evolved that way. First of all, a word on evolution is that uh, there's no, and, and this, is, this is a key concept in Buddhism, there's no guarantee that evolution was for a good reason, for a good thing. That evolution was, that we see, the, the idea of evolution, is the, the implication is that it's somehow getting better, right? Self-preservation. Yeah. But, but science, pure science doesn't actually say that. It says change. So, and yes, it's allowed us to, to survive, but um, you, you have to put that in the context of, of happiness or, or, or even, let's say, the universe. Because what has it really done? The earth is going to go tumbling into the... or is going to burn to a crisp in, in how many more billions of years. So in the, in the scheme of things, evolution doesn't mean a thing. Okay, so that's just a little bit of background, but it's kind of beating around the bush. But... The point is that you don't actually need restlessness to deal with your problems and to find happiness, okay? So one thing is that you made, you, 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 the preservation of, of life may not be your answer to happiness, your key to happiness. Some people just survive. That's an extreme answer, but it can be true. Um, yes, so you, you, you're able to spend your life running from fire or running from lions. But what kind of a life is that to keep running? For example, well, if you, if you're, if for example you're living, suppose you're, suppose you're in, uh, in jail or you're being tortured or so on. Uh, to to live a life of constant uh, anxiety or or, or uh, anxiousness about that, it's only a cause for for suffering. So in, in, in certain cases, <coughs> self-preservation isn't, isn't actually the most important thing. But that being said, running from a lion doesn't require you to be anxious. It just requires you to know that there's a lion, and it requires you to be fast, which, you know, just, just as, a, as, a total, as a tangent, um, anxiety actually hinders your, or can hinder your ability to uh, to to 
cultivate physical endurance and so on. So um, an animal that is sure of itself, that is confident, and that is, is in tune with itself can, uh, can do much better than an animal that's always flighty and, and uh, anxious. But, but there's, there's, no, there's no point there where you had to be anxious. You see the lion, you know that the lion's a threat. You, you, you can react quite quickly without anxiety. But there's a small part of it that says to you, well, if, if, if it's anxiety that keeps me alive, if, if my life is just going to be about anxious, about being anxious or being afraid of things, it's not much of a life at all. And, and I'm saying that because in the end, that's what it comes down to. In the end, giving up everything can mean giving up your life and, and continuing on without trying to preserve your life. And I'm beating around the bush, but the point is that you don't, you don't, death isn't everything, you see. We're, we're Buddhist and, and we have a different concept of reality. See, what I'm talking about, the rising and ceasing of your experiences, when you die, that doesn't stop. Uh, this is our, our, our framework. Like I, I, w I didn't quite want to get there because I know some people don't even believe such things. But uh, it, it is our way of looking, one way of looking at things, uh, the way we look at things. The reality in front of us doesn't stop; it continues. And so, in that case, the idea of self-preservation isn't all that important at all. What's important is the quality of your mind at all times. Because if you die, suppose you get all anxious, well, you, you've, you may survive, or you may just die full of fear and, and anxiety, in which case you've, you've gambled and lost big time, because you die, according to Buddhism, because you die with an unwholesome mind and you, you go to an un, a, a very bad place. Much more important. And, and so death, in fact, is something we throw out the window. We, we don't have any, any, any concern about death. Uh, our, our concern about it is about the moments and, and where we're headed. If you die, if you're murdered horribly, but your mind is, is, is at peace, it, it's no skin off your back. So, a little bit of a, it's a difficult answer because, you know, if, if I, I'm, I don't know you, so I, I want to be a little careful, but if, you, if I knew that you were a devout Buddhist who, who really was into these sort of things, I could just say, well, don't worry, if you die, you'll go to heaven, you know, be, be, have, have a mind that's pure. But that's really the answer. If I'm not going to beat around the bush, the point is the point is that we don't have any concept of what death is. We have these beliefs that it has some some profound meaning right uh, but no one knows what death is no one no one has has or very few people have any memory of what it was like to die um, and and so materialists or people who aren't Buddhists or don't believe in reincarnation would say would agree that no one knows what it's like to die. So we don't know what happens. In fact, the mystery of consciousness isn't even very well understood by science, by, by the modern world. So what is it, what, what's going to happen to that consciousness when you die? Well, it depends on what you believe. But what we know, and this is what Buddhism deals with, what we know, is that there's the experience arising and ceasing constantly. And that's why we, we feel we can get away with saying it's, we have no reason to believe that's going to stop. Because that's our basis of reality. Our basis of reality isn't this three-dimensional space. The basis of reality is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. That, to, to the best of our knowledge, doesn't cease. We've never experienced it ceasing unless you realize Nibbana, 
nirvana is where that ceases. But otherwise, it just goes on and on and on and on. Even in our sleep, we dream. And so we throw death out the window and we, we watch cause and effect. We don't worry about that death thing. And we worry about our, the, the path that we're taking. And that would include anxiety. That would include things like the need to constantly protect yourself. Because you see, the idea that you're getting at is what leads people to, be, to fear for their lives and safety all the time. Fear for their, their children's safety, fear for their friends. Fear for everything, you know, fear for society, the environment, and, and, and you open a whole can of beans when suddenly you have to be afraid about things. And, if, and, and you enter into a view that somehow that's the way to find happiness, which is just going to, that view is going to lead you to suffering. So, which, which kind of makes people despair because then what do you do? Is, is it one extreme or the it's other? Natural. It's a natural. It's Yes, it could be, you know, but that word is a very, very, um, murder is natural. Uh, rape, I think, to some extent is natural. There's a lot of things that are natural, but may not be good. And that's a difficult one to resolve, and people want to say, well, that's fine then, at least it's natural. <laughs> and that, that, you, you have to say that if you believe in, if you're a materialist, if you believe in just this one life, biology, evolution, and so on. If you take this to be reality, this three-dimensional space, if you really believe there's walls there and everything, but Buddhism doesn't, we, we don't go that far. Our view, our belief is actually better than that. We say better than that because it doesn't go so far. I see the wall, but I don't go as far as to say the wall exists. I say seeing exists. And because I only go so far, um, we, we can come up, we have this idea, our understanding is that uh, the reason we are the way we are now is because of how we were in the past. So when you say it's natural, I say it's a formed habit. And I, I, can, I can provide some, some, some evidence for that because it can be unlearned. You can unlearn your fear, your, all of these things that you say are natural. I can change that. I mean, you can, un you can learn all sorts of crazy things, a clockwork orange. You can learn, learn you know, classic conditioning, uh, operant conditioning. You can, you can change them. It's difficult. And people would say, some people say it's hardwired in the brain. But even, even the brain, um, the, the modern studies will tell you it's much more plastic than we think it is. You know, people who lose their vision and, and, and use those brain cells to hear and so on and that kind of thing. So... It's a very common argument that I hear that is very, very dangerous, the idea that something's natural, because it opens philosophical can of worms, and it also, scientifically, it's not precise enough to say something's natural. But, but definitely from a Buddhist point of view, it doesn't mean anything to us, because that just means you're carrying it from your past life. So if I give you the Buddhist answer, natural doesn't mean anything to me. It just means... That's who you were before, and you've cultivated that, and that's why you are the way you are now. To some extent, to some extent, the body fits you into a certain mold as well, and hormones and chemicals and so on, they influence that. So there's not denying that, but still, it's just artificial. It's still just formed. It doesn't mean anything. The human form is not perfect. It's, we're not made in God's image, remember. This is not Christianity. So there's no sense that just because it's the way things are, it's good. So there's, 
there's just as a corollary, there's three three theories of why things are the way they are. The first one they call um, natural selection. Right? So you know what that is. The second one they call intelligent design. So you know that's what they what creationism became. The third one is called unintelligent design, and that's the one that Buddhists subscribed. That we're this way because of our ignorance. We've actually the reason we're we're, we're the reason for humans evolving is not exactly a good thing. It's through clinging. Because of our, our cultivation of clinging, we've cultivated an artificial state that we now call human, being human. Anyway, just some back story. So you get an idea of where we're coming from. But basically speaking, it's, there's evidence, at the very least there's evidence to show that, first of all, that it may, you know, natural may not mean much. And second of all, it certainly doesn't mean happiness. And just because something's natural doesn't mean it's the right way. Even if we were made in God's image and this was all the way it's supposed to be, I'd still rebel. I'd still say, no way, man, I'm not playing the game. Because it's not a way to find happiness. It's not going to lead you to peace. And really, you do have to go to the extreme. In the end, I, I put, put on the record that you have to go to the extreme of giving up everything, giving up your life. Sabanisaga, the Buddha said. And I, I, I subscribe 100% to that. I'm not saying I'm there or that you know I'm able to do it, but I know... Any sort of clinging can, is, is 100% the wrong way. So clinging to anything in the end. You realize it's useless. It's, yes. It's, it's worse. It's suffering. It's a cause for suffering. And, and that's scary because we, we, we're okay with big things. You know, I, I'm fine with not clinging to my anger or my, 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 my greed, or my, my, but not clinging to you know, my life, and, you know, my, my breath. I cling know. to my breath. Difficult. Cling to my iPhone? Hmm. <laughs> no. Okay, thank you. All right. Hope that helps. I have a yes, ma'am. She said um, human behavior is, is natural, and you said it's in fact learned. Mm. Is grieving a learned behavior? Grieving? Mm -hmm. Or is it a natural? reaction when you lose something. The only thing that's natural, I would say, are our hormones and uh, the, the kind of things like hormones, or I don't, I'm not a chemist or biologist, but the whole, that whole natural system, even that, we would say, is artificial because it's formed by, like our genes, our, um, the, 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 the centers in the brain, all, nervous system. All the reward centers, the, the the addiction cycle, and so on. All of that is a product of artificial cause, artificial or, or of constructed causes and conditions. Much of much we would say has to do with the mind. So our our understanding is that there's a mind there in the womb from the very first moment, and it's affecting the the fetus. It's not it's not entirely responsible for the way the fetus develops, but it's affecting it. It's, it's leaving its mark on the fetus. So my, my, my the point that I try, was trying to make is that natural is, is a misleading term. You know, what you mean by that? You're referring to, in my mind, either the physical or the mental causes, both of which are, are from the past and, and they're built up and both of which are impermanent, are temporary. So in that sense, our, 
in and of themselves. They don't have any intrinsic meaning. You see, we like to make things entities. So when you say grieving, the process of grieving is made up of moments. And those moments are different, for, are distinct from each other. There's the moment of thinking about something. Then there's the moment of recognizing what that thing is. Then there's the moment of deciding how you feel about that thing. Uh, maybe even in there there's the, the moment that you feel something about it. Feels good, it feels bad. So then you decide it's it's good or it's bad, I like it or I don't like it. Then there's the next moment of deciding what you're going to do about it. Intention. Where you make a determination. I'm going to... And 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 that leads the next in this case leads the next moment to grieving, to to a moment of of uh, or determination that that's a bad thing, which leads to crying or leads to sadness, and which in turn leads to more thinking about it. it it's a cycle and, and it can blow up. So all of that you have to say where does all that come from, and it comes from many different places. Part of it can be the hormones, it can be, for grieving, it can be an attachment to crying, because crying is pleasant. It releases endorphins, I think. It releases something pleasant. And that's addictive. And that leads people to actually, it, it actually uh, reaffirms the desire to grieve. And uh, reaffirms the habit of grieving. We have a question back here. Yeah. Hi, um... You can stand and... Uh, yeah. Thank, thank you, Bhante. Um, my question is um, the four frames of references, um, after they are established, and you know, for pretty much everyone here, it's a constant process, um, but after that is established, you know, what is the next um, you know, step? And a second question on top of that is a four, four frames of reference related to uh, the links of transcendental dependent origination. Mm -hmm. Good question, huh? No? Okay, what what is the next step after the four satipatthana, which he's translating as frames of reference? It's probably one of my least favorite translations. Um, I want to give you, I, I could just say for myself what I feel, but I'm going to try to be sure that I'm on the right track. The four, frame, the four satipatthana, the Buddha said, I, see, I want to find something where I can say the Buddha said, so it's not just me saying it. The Buddha said that they lead to Nibbāna, right? Ekayanovayang bhikkave mago, this is the straight path, or the one-way path, to Nibbānasa satyikiriyaya, for the realization of Nibbāna for yourself. So, which leads me to the answer that I want to give, and it's the answer that I have for you, is that the next step after the four satipatthana, once they're fully developed, is the attainment of nibbana, the attainment, the realization of, of freedom from suffering. And that's why I say they're the thread through the, the Eightfold Noble Path, or they're the thread through the, the, the trainings, because they lead to morality, they, they cultivate concentration, and they help you cultivate wisdom. And this is why the Buddha said mindfulness is, is always valuable. It's not like the other faculties where they have to be balanced. It's the balancing faculty. So up until the moment of... Another way of, of, of 
of explaining that or giving evidence for that is the idea of the Eightfold Noble Path itself. If you were to give me any one of the eight path factors and say what comes after I've developed it, I would say that's it because all eight of those fact path factors, once they're developed and developed in tandem, so when you say fully developed, you actually, um, the answer to that is the Eightfold Noble Path. The moment when one enters into what is called the Arya Atangika Maga, the Eightfold Noble Path, it's just one moment. And that moment is the last moment of samsara or of, of the observation of samsara before one enters into Nibbana. So there's nothing after it. The next moment is Nibbana. As for how it deals with, um, you're talking about Paticca Samupada, I guess, the dependent origination, or, or you had another term for it. Um, we j ignorance yeah. leads to formations, formations lead to... Yeah, on the steps in between uh, from ignorance to uh, Nirvana. The, the, 12, the, the links of transcendental dependent origination. But ignorance doesn't lead to Nibbana. So ignorance to what? To suffering. Okay, and you're talking about I, I thought there was dependent origination is where ignorance leads to suffering, and then there is the links of transcendental dependent origination, which leads from suffering to awakening. Right, there is something about that somewhere. Um, the standard definition of or, or enumeration of it is with the uh, uh, the fading away of ignorance. There's the da-da-da-da-da-da all the way to enlightenment. That's what you're thinking of, no? Still called dependent origination as far as I know. I don't know. Could be another term for it. Tran transcendental. It's kind of neat. Interesting term. But uh, it's, just, it's just the other way. So if you have ignorance, it leads you to uh, do and say bad, good and bad things, to cultivate karma, which leads you to be reborn. To make to have more ignorance, which leads you to cling, and when you cling, that when you crave, then you cling, and when you cling, then you you you're born again, and you keep suffering, and so on. In very very brief, in my my words, that's how it is. Mindfulness is what. Again, I want to make sure I'm not just saying this for myself, because I can tell you as a meditation teacher, but I think it'd be good if I tell you from the Buddha's words. Well, here's a good quote. Yani sotani lokasming sati tesang niwarayang. All streams that exist in the world, mindfulness is that which cuts them off. So the answer is, it cuts the stream. It cuts the, the dependent origination. And it cuts it at ignorance. Because mindfulness leads to, leads to wisdom. I really like to have a quote that, that tells me that, but it's... I mean, you can see it from the meditation and, and, and also from the, the explanation that mindfulness leads to the right path and leads to Nibbana. But from a practical point of view, it's quite obvious. When you sit down and you say to yourself, hearing, hearing, or you say to yourself, pain, pain, or you, you remind yourself of this, the ignorance goes away. That which leads you to like and dislike is gone. It's, it's like a, mindfulness is like this water. It's a sol solvent, right? When you have something sticky, you know, and you pour water on it, it just melts away. 
mindfulness is like the universal solvent that melts away all of the the uh, tangles, all of the stickiness. It's like the untying of all the knots. It's also just a part of the process. Obviously, mindfulness isn't in and of itself enough without morality, for example. But you have suttas where the Buddha said, monks would come up in the Sangyutta Nikaya, the monks would come up to the Buddha and say, uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm old or whatever, and I just want something very, very simple to practice. Give me the most brief teaching. And they would say, he would say, have good morality and cultivate right view, and then go and practice the four satipatthana. So how does mindfulness work? Mindfulness destroys ignorance. Without ignorance, there's no avijaya tueva asesa viraga nirodo. With the overcoming of ignorance, there is uh, no good or bad deeds, no good or bad karma. Um, and and at the same time, you skip ahead to tanha, right? Vedana pachaya tanha. Feelings lead to craving. Well, there's ignorance in there. That's describing ignorance again. Vedana doesn't lead to tanha if there's no ignorance. right? So at the moment of Vedana, if you have mindfulness there, tanha doesn't arise. So it cuts it there as well. Paticca Samavada is very complicated. So there's people who like to say it's just one life. You know, the one life Paticca dependent origination theory, it's all in this life. I can't, I don't, the commentary doesn't subscribe to that. And, and I don't subscribe to it being the only way because it's much more complicated than that. Avijja is at the beginning, but it's also in the middle. So how do you explain that? If you have just one life and if it's just one circle, according to the commentaries, Paticca Samapada is three circles. It's describing three parts. The first three elements are past lives, right? Or it's lives in general. So it's a big picture. Ignorance leads you to do good and bad things, which leads you to be reborn. Simple. Ah, but let's go into the details there. What are the details? Well, then you get to the second part, and you say, well, there arises experience. Basically, there arises objective experience. And then there's the ignorance stuck in there, which leads you to tanha, to craving. And because of craving, then you want to be born again. Or you, you want to do something. Because of craving, you cling to something. Because of clinging, you decide, I'm going to become a doctor. I'm going to become. I'm going to get rich. I'm going to chase after this. I'm, I'm going to go get something to eat. I'm going to get a hamburger. And that leads you... To become, that leads to becoming. Suddenly you're in your car, you've become something in your car. Right? And that also eventually leads you to be reborn again. And because of all that, that's one more circle. There's the <coughs> third circle, which, is, which describes the suffering aspect of this. This is all going to birth, old age, sickness, death, comes from all this. So it's really three circles. It's the only way it makes sense to me, but I know there's a huge argument about that one. People, there's, there's people who have scolded and yelled at me for saying basically what the commentary says. Anyway. I, did that answer you? Yes. Good. Wonderful. Can you guys hear me over there? I'm very quiet most of the time. Good. Yes, sir. Um, I have a question about the concept of, of rebirth because there seems to be kind of a contradiction like the, way, the way I understand it between that and the concept of soullessness. Um, mm. That the, when the way it sounds when you read, um, it seems that they're just painting this picture of these kind of uh, you know, these threads and just this linear progression of right. 
lives that I, you know, yeah. I have these past lives, and then depending on what I do in this life, that will then mm -hmm. go into my next life, and each of us, we all are on these, these individual threads, and you're going to go, you know, you had your past life, and, you know, you kind of go on, yeah. um, and it kind of paints this picture, but, but at the same time, then there's this concept of, of soullessness, and so right. uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure that that's not what they're really getting at, is that mm -hmm. there are these threads, but why does it sound that way? You know, you know, how are you reconciling yeah. this ideal soul? Is like, what is proceeding from? Okay, you're you're using English words. Yeah. <laughs> Soullessness, uh, and and the, it's not wrong, but the way I say you're using English words because it can be misleading, right? Soullessness, and the Pali is even mis. I mean, people are misled by even the Pali by by the original language, and so there's a lot of people who. Okay, to each their own, and I'm 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 only one teacher, but but I would say, it seems strange to me that they've come to the idea that soullessness actually means, or anatta actually means, that we're all connected, that we aren't individuals, which you have to prove. I'd have to say prove it, or give me some evidence, because it's quite clear. You've never had my thoughts, have you? you you've never. You don't know what I've been thinking. Huh? You, you don't. We obviously are individuals. So, so this idea that 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 there's that we're not that goes totally against any kind of. I, I don't, I've never heard of any meditator who has had any other experience. Best we can do, maybe you can read other people's thoughts, but it's only like you hear them speaking. It's, you're not actually them thinking. You're not actually them acting. So that's the first. That's not even a point yet. But the point being the. What does that word actually mean, anatta? Um, in, on its most basic level, it simply means that the things that you're experiencing do not belong to you, are, are not, a, are not, do not belong to a self, right? And the important, the, even, even, sorry, even more specific, are not under your control, are not subject to control. That's the practical aspect of it. And many people want to stop there. I'd actually be fine if you stopped there. Because Buddhism, from my point of view, from, what, from all that I've studied and all that I've seen, Buddhism understands reality as a practical thing. Not only takes a practical view of reality, but has the sort of view that says reality is an experiential process. So this world, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it fall, it doesn't make a sound. It didn't even exist in the first place. It existed up here in your mind when you thought about the tree in the forest. Uh, there's the potential, and, and quantum physics is kind of, there's kind of something, some connection there, right? Because quantum physics, they wanted to try to, the orthodox interpretation was saying basically the same thing. Copenhagen and all these guys are saying these sorts of things that, that, you know, the cat is both alive and dead in the box until someone, until there's the, the experience of it. And... Um, so, we're not concerned about whether there is or is... The Buddha never said there is no self, right? What he said, and it's indicative of the sort of things the Buddha would say, monks, hold on, cling fast to any view of self that when you cling to it does not lead you to suffer. He said, do you see such a view, O monks? And they said, no, venerable sir, we do not see such a view. And he said, good monks, I see no such view either. Therefore, cling not to any view of self. Some, I don't think he quite said that at the end, but 
He said, I don't see any such view either. And that's, it, that's sort of exemplary of the sort of things the Buddha would say, not necessarily because he didn't have such standpoints, but because it's not important. Who, who cares whether there's a soul or not, right? So um, it's important to keep that in mind so that we don't fixate on, on, on is this the case, is that the case. But that being said, I would probably go out on a limb and say, Anatta doesn't mean, and, and the idea of us having individuals is not contrary to what the Buddha taught. So if you were to hold the belief that I am an individual and you are an individual, and we have individual streams of consciousness, both is it supported by reality and it doesn't seem to my knowledge to be contradicted by the Buddha's teaching. That's why I say the word anatta is talking about something else. Within your individual individuality, your individual stream of consciousness that is reborn as an individual, uh, none of that is self or, or under any control. It's, and that's even maybe going too far. I would say, not under your control, let's leave it at that. Okay, so... Um, because it's, it's not determinism either, you see. Anyone who says reality is deterministic is going too far. It's starting to get into concepts, the idea of a framework in which it could be deterministic. Buddha said, look, you're sitting right there, I'm sitting right here. These things that you're experiencing are not under your control. Let go of them. Come to see that they are not you and yours, and you'll be free from suffering. Let's leave it at that. That was the sort of thing. It's a tricky subject. And the Buddha was handled it quite delicately at times, not answering people when they asked him about it. Um, so, certainly, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I would just point out that it's it's he's not going that far when he says soullessness or, or anatta, because whenever he talked about it, he said sabe dhamma. He's talking about dhammas, <coughs> things, experiences, realities that arise. They're non-self. He never said there is no self. Not that he, not that that means there is a self, you see, but it's it's an abstraction. It's already talking about things that are none of our concern. Experience is our concern. Practice is our concern. Does it lead to the end of suffering? No. Forget about it. I'm going. Um, so, um, another problem I have with that is this concept of. Uh, Luca, the last universal common ancestor. Right? If we're like always being reborn, you kind of trace that backwards. Yeah. A couple billion years. Every life form converges on one, you know, the, 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 the first life form, right? So, and then, so, then let's say that... Wait, wait, you mean on, on Earth? Are you talking about on Earth? Ever, right? How, who says that? Buddha, Buddhism doesn't say that. Okay, well, on, on Earth. We'll say. <laughs> so we don't know. Ah, the, uh, the, the Big Bang. You mean? You mean the Big Bang? Oh well, that's okay. well, or whatever, whatever it was. The last, the concept of the last universal answer, We all came from something, right? My my parents and their parents and their parents. But you didn't come. From, but you and the physical world. But that's the physical world doesn't even exist. It's just a concept. So the soul, that that which is reborn, when I die, the thing that's going to be. Wait, okay, can we just can we just step back just a second? Um, nothing is reborn. Not one thing is ever reborn, according to Buddhism. That which arises ceases without remainder. 
what arises is an experience and that experience lasts however it lasts momentarily and then it's gone the next moment there's a new experience so so if you're if you're talking from a buddhist point of view if you're looking at if you're if you're picking at the buddhist uh, theory this is you have to get it right we actually don't believe in rebirth we just don't believe in death so re rebirth is every moment we're born every moment and death is just a concept it's like waves against the shore the water is the same and we build up this human body it's just a concept and there's still experiences experiences it's just an artificial uh, formation of experiences so we're stuck in a a box of experiences. We can't have experiences outside of the human realm. So the, we say the eyes let us see. Well, in fact, according to Buddhism, they prevent us from seeing. If you've ever had out-of-body experiences, you see how much more you can see. Uh, it's like a prison, and these are our windows. So um, that's all it is. Death doesn't. Death isn't any, isn't meaningful. It's a, it's a it's a concept. It's like a it's it's a product of the artificial nature of our our birth of of humankind it's just an artificial construct so i don't know if that changes what you were or if maybe that even answers your question no it's an interesting perspective all right it changes it from you know if you say there is no death to begin with uh-huh then that puts a different connotation to it when you say rebirth right so uh, that is interesting mm. Welcome. Um, I'm going to start this question with a brief statement. So, how is our how is our recording doing? Oh, it's fine. We have uh, another hour left on it. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be quite the YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so in the Christian tradition, they say that the purpose of the inherent meaning of existence is to serve God, because God gave us our meaning by creating us, and so. We serve him to go to heaven and join him, or whatever the Christian cosmology is. I don't know that well. And then later in the you know the 19th and 20th century, the existentialist movement came out that said that well, if there's no God, that means that there's no inherent meaning to existence. Right. That's the basic existentialist claim. And the philosophers had a number of different ways of dealing with this supposed inherent meaninglessness of existence. However, we can also say that, that Buddhism kind of lies in between these two extremes, the first being eternalism of heaven and God, the second one being annihilationism, meaning that we there's nothing after death, we're just mm -hmm. completely annihilated. So then, what would, the, what would Buddhism, being the, the middle way, say to the question of, is there inherent meaning to existence, or samsara, or whatever mm -hmm. you'd like to call it? Buddhism is not the middle way. This is important. Everyone says, well, Buddhism is the middle way, so I'll have one beer or two beer, and that's moderation, right? <laughs> we have to be very careful when we talk about the middle way. It's not a prominent concept in, in the Buddha's teaching. He used it in specific situations to say neither nor, but he did take stands on certain things. Um, the Buddha said no existence. He's, he, he picked up a... Oh no, he said, imagine you have a, 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 a speck of feces on your fingernail. He says, is that worth anything? And they said, no. And he said, well, in the same way, existence, even to the most minuscule amount, is, is worthless. Harsh, I mean, not something we want to hear. But, and certainly most of us aren't there yet. 
But if you want to look on a, a brighter side, like that's what the Buddha said, but if you want to put a good spin on that, you could say, life is what you make of it. We're so conditioned by, by God, by, 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 by uh, theistic religions, by Hollywood, to think that there's some happy ending or, or some meaning or, or ending in store for us. Not necessarily a happy ending, but there's some ending and that things have meaning. So, so the number of people that you hear saying everything happens for a reason, I'd like to confront those people and say, do you have proof or even evidence of such a statement? That everything happens for a reason? I suppose if you want to be, you know, in a general sense, it, it happens based on a cause or causes. But I don't even know that. Is there a stochastic element or randomness in, in the universe? Could be. I don't have any proof either way. But um, it's been a real eye-opener for me to catch myself realizing that even as a Buddhist, I don't have a sure you know, path, you know, not, not, not certain of what my future is going to be. Because you, with everything we think this, I become a Buddhist and I think, okay, I'm on the right path, it's cool. Because happy ending's in front of me, because it's, it's, it's meant to be. But it's not meant to be. You don't know what the future holds. That's the scary thing about death. That's the scary thing about, about uh, the future. Something that, that leads people to really want to um, take control of their own lives. It's funny, ironic, really. We talk about giving up control, but in some sense, you really have to take control of your life and stop saying, it'll turn out all right in the end. <laughs> Whatever me whatever's meant to be, will be. You have to take control of it. and Well, you, you, you actually have to come to the point where you're okay with anything being the way it is. But, but that is a taking control, in a sense. Because normally when we say that, we mean, it's okay that I like these things, it's okay that I dislike these things, it's okay that I'm attached, it's okay that I'm imperfect, or so on. And so we put up with, all, with, with the way we are. Obviously, yes, we should put up with the way things are, but not with the way we are. And so you put a good spin on it, you say, Purpose, purposelessness of, of the universe is a very, very good thing. Because no longer do we have an artificial purpose imposed upon us. We can do what we want and be completely responsible. Which means we never have to feel bad about anything. If, if, I'm, if I'm in intense suffering, if, I'm, if, according to, if I follow Buddhist theory according to Buddhist theory, I don't have anyone to blame but myself. I can feel perfectly fine. I did this to myself. I'm the reason why I'm suffering. So it's, it's reassuring, really, because you just say, you know, what did I expect? What? There's no, why is this happening to me? Why, God, why have you forsaken me? There's none of that anymore. If God's forsaken, you say, well, that's my karma. I must have done something to tick him off in the past. It, it takes you out of that. You no longer have to be responsible to even God or, or anything. So it's, it's, in, it's freeing. And I've talked to Catholics. I was in a Buddhist studies class and this Catholic friend of mine came up to me afterwards and said, this reincarnation thing is amazing. The idea that you have a second chance. Because <laughs> for her, it's been drilled into her Christ or, or hell. <laughs> One chance at salvation. And, and, it, and, and it has to be their salvation, their they dictate to you how you are s 
saved. Okay. But I, I, do, I do feel like that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, that there is, the Buddha does prescribe an inherent meaning to existence, and that inherent meaning would be to escape this existence, period, by going into Nirvana. Is that... But that's not giving it meaning, that's calling it meaningless. That's, that's the saying... meaning would be the path to leaving the meaninglessness. Uh, the, the purpose, maybe? Or no, not even... I would say no. Because there's no... You can't, like... You can't uh, find... Maybe you can, but... No, the Buddha was very much... If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. He's, in fairly mild terms, encouraged people to go the way he suggested. But it was quite mild. And much more often it was just, this leads to this, Bhaticca Samupada, dependent origination. He doesn't say one is better. He just said, if you do this, suffering comes. If you do this, suffering ceases. Your choice. And I think that's important. He, he, he lays out clearly that the universe is totally up to you. You don't have to blame God for anything. Or, or you don't uh, have to look for meaning in anything. I would say it's kind of written on the wall in a sense that for the most part we don't want to suffer. And so it's really a no-brainer which one you're going to choose, path to suffering, path to, ha path to happiness. So in that sense, uh, there is something like an inherent meaning in the sense that um, purpose, the purpose is to become free from suffering, as you say. But only because... It's inherent to the system that suffering is undesirable and happiness is... So it's, rather than a purpose, I would say it's a nature that inclines people to in one direction, inclines beings, inclines us in one direction and has an explicit value of good and bad, like suffering is bad and, and so on. But it's just the nature of the system. Is there meaning or purpose to that? I mean, is that meaningful? I don't know. I mean, I mean the idea of suffering is meaningful. And that's a problem because people don't see it. They don't realize that suffering is bad to the extent that we, we go through lives kind of saying, oh, it's okay, you know, suffering's part of life and builds character or whatever. Without, um, often, often, just living as zombies because we don't think that it's possible to become free from suffering. So it's important to give it that meaning and say, look, suffering is an important thing and understanding suffering is an important thing. So I think you could say that, but I, in an ultimate sense, I wouldn't say that means samsara has some meaning and the universe has some purpose or meaning. We have purpose. Our purpose is to get the heck out of here. <laughs> that was an interesting answer. Thank you, Bob. A question about um, personal responsibility and suffering. Because mm -hmm. from an experiential point of view, whenever I felt all the suffering in my life, I was responsible for it. Wasn't something else. Mm -hmm. It didn't just happen to me. Got points okay. in my life where I was like, the only reason that you're suffering is because you caused it. That yes, was the most suffering I've ever had. I always found it easy to say, oh, mm -hmm. well, God did that to me, or I, I didn't see. do what somebody else did it to me. But when I took responsibility uh -huh. for, oh, you created this. It makes you suffer. Uh, it wasn't. So it wasn't actually relieving the to pain you. Was the worst. <laughs> pain I've ever I see. had, well, so how would you relieve that and feel like that responsibility mm -hmm. to suffering is freeing? 
and not that caused me the most suffering. Right. When I took responsibility, and said this is because you did it, and nobody else. Right. And like taking responsibility. Because for that, you because you have no scapegoat, right? If I'm it's some if it, if it's somebody own. else, then you don't have to deal with it. Yeah, and if God made it happen, well, then it was God's fault. Right, but okay, does that actually solve the problem? Suppose I say my anger is God's God's fault. Is that going to make me a less angry person? Not, it's not like, less angry, but the pain of the suffering yeah. was stronger when I said, well, you caused this, so now you're responsible. So yeah, it's kind of like a band... You caused it. It's kind of so like putting a band-aid over the... Like, like God, from our point of view, is a band-aid solution. Yeah, that's how I feel. So, if I can blame yeah. somebody else, I'm not going to suffer. Yeah. So I, mean, I mean, there's something to do with, with the spirituality of God that makes you feel good in the faith and so on. It actually does relieve some suffering. But... It gives you answers. But it, yeah, I, I, but that's the key, is that it doesn't give you answers. It fools you into thinking you have the answers. Like I could say, blame it on that, uh, that vase over there. And say, okay. It's, but it doesn't, it doesn't describe reality. The reason why it hurts, has to hurt because if, if it's to heal, is because you're actually, you're actually being honest with yourself. You're no longer running away. Think of it as running away. If you, you, if, as long as you can run away from your troubles, you'll be fine. But it catches up on you, and every time you do run That's away the most from it, part in my life. Every, every time it, you, you, every time you do run away from it, you become more averse to it. You're cultivating aversion towards it, yeah. so um, you become more dependent on that answer, God, for example. You become more dependent on, okay. on that. It's a, it's an addiction habit. It's a, it's habit forming in the brain. The brain uh, responds. This happened. I know what to do with that. Run away. You know, find an answer. Okay, so. Not picking on God, but any answer that is not based on on the facts, right? The facts, or, or based on reality of what's going on, uh, is is going to going to just make it worse because it's not going to make it go away, okay. right? It's if delaying. if God could make your anger go away, great. Blame, you know, blaming it on God, if that could make whatever your problems go away, then great. But if it doesn't, all it's going to do is make you more averse to the problems. To the point where eventually it's going to explode and you're going to be in big trouble. So, in any case, that's what I would say. Unless you find one way of of describing it that actually uh, gets rid of the problem, which we would say the only way to do that is to deal with it, to get in there with the pain, and you'll find that pain is freeing if you know how to deal with it. It's excruciating. It's hard to deal with, but that's facing your problems. To, with, with the the uh, qualifier that blaming yourself it's may actually be going, yeah, but blaming yourself can often be another way of escapism, hate self hatred. Uh, it's going too far. In fact, maybe always taking responsibility isn't the point, um, but understanding how it came about based on causes and conditions. So I may have misspoken there when I said it's freeing. The, the freeing is, the correct path is not self-responsibility. It's attributing the right causes to the, the problem, which are totally natural. You don't blame anyone, yourself or others. So guilt is another big problem. That's why you often feel great suffering. And it's not, that's not freeing. But um, being objective and, and not having someone to blame can be quite painful at first, mm -hmm. but if you're honest with yourself, you know that's the only way to go. Stop blaming people. Right? And, and just let it, you know, I'm angry or, or I'm, I'm all this suffering inside, let it go like a poisonous gas, let it out. Be objective. This is the Buddhist path.
be open, clear, and objective. Dite dite matang bhuvisati. When you see something, let it just be seeing. When you hear something, let it just be hearing. It's the most difficult thing to do, and it's very painful, but it feels so right, and it feels so freeing that you just let it out, and you become strong, you become invincible. So that then that pain, when it comes back, you're not afraid of it, because you know, I, I can deal with that. I can be with that pain. I can be with that suffering. Just be with it. It's what we think we can't do. We think, if there's pain, I can't... The last thing I'm going to do is deal with it. I cannot do that. Anything else. Give me drugs, give me you know, anything. So we, we, we find that, that way of doing what we think is impossible. There's being with the experience. The first is painful. In fact, the reason it's painful is because of the aversion, not because of the pain. So, when you finally take responsibility, using this as an example, it's so painful because you've avoided responsibility for so long. For people who are used to it, who are accustomed to it's not, not taking responsibility, but being objective about it, it's much less painful. Until the, until the point where it's not painful at all. And then anything comes to you, you don't have to run anymore. Oh yes. But yes, blaming yourself is a problem there. Okay. Don't go so far. It's too far. Okay. Yeah. Just the awareness. Just, um, I'm following up with, with um, Nick's comment to you earlier. Yeah. And you, you ended your response to him by saying there is no death. Yes. And um, I, I'm a little confused because I, I remember seeing or hearing Deepak Chopra when he went to India and he he said there there meditation session where the monks actually meditate on their death. Yeah, he was meditating on death recently. Right. So if there is no death, why are you meditating on death? Death is a concept. There's obviously death. We've we've seen people die, right? This is why you're confused. You're saying, "What is this guy talking about?" But it's a concept. You see, when you were sitting in meditation, did you notice that, how you felt, how you were sitting, when I said, say, sitting, sitting, did you try that? Mm -hmm. And you feel you're sitting? That's reality. There's no death there, except the momentary death. That's a different, it's a whole paradigm shift. The way we're working right now, sitting here, I, you're there, I'm here, we're sitting in this room, we're all alive. This is all conceptual. It's all going on in our brains. There was this neat, um, one of the guys who did the, the human genome, who mapped the human genome, uh, he wrote a book called Biocentrism, awful book, published by Deepak Chopra. But the, 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 it, was the, it was one of the worst edited books I've ever read. But the concept behind it, he's brilliant, he's one of these genius guys. The concept behind it, um, from a scientific point of view, anyone read Biocentrism? You know this, this concept? Look it up. His, his thesis was quite good, but when he turned it into a book, he didn't have a clue what he was saying. Um, the point is just this, that reality starts from our experience. All of what we're seeing is being created in our minds. They've done studies. When you look at something, you don't actually look at all of it. You look at like three spots, and your eyes go back and forth between those three spots, and the rest of it is made up in your mind. They've done studies where they can change a picture while you're looking at it, and you don't notice that it changed because of that, because they can fool you, fool your mind, because you're not looking at the whole thing. Uh, Point being, reality is just being created all here in our, mostly here in our heads, right? Or, or, or the concepts are being created in our heads. So, does death exist? Well, it's, it is a pattern, right, to experience as a human being. 
There, be, there may be beings out there that have different patterns or don't die in the same way. But as a human being, this is a pattern that we go through, very much based on the, the nature of the body as being untenable, unsustainable. But the... Uh, and so, it being a pattern, it has certain consequences. That moment, it's like the moment when you choose to cross the road. Well, if you don't look both ways, it could have consequences. Right? It's a moment that uh, can be quite profound. Right? Or um, a conversation with a person, like me talking to you, for example. If I say something to make you upset, you could decide you never want to practice Buddhism again. It's, a, it's an important moment there. Uh, death is one of those moments that we've identified as being important. It doesn't mean it's categorically different from any other moment. It's, it's more powerful, but it's still a moment in time. So, it being powerful, people focus on it. But it's just the same as, you know, I know I only have a few days to stay here, so I want to make the most of my time here. And so when I think about the fact that I have to leave here in a few days, that, may, that reminds me, I say, okay, don't waste your time. You have to make the best of your time here. It's that kind of, that's why we focus on death. It doesn't, have the, it doesn't lead you to enlightenment, but it can have a profound effect on your life, reminding you that, look, you've only got so much time before something big is going to happen. It's just, that's all it is. So why they do that, there's reasons for it. Does it lead to enlightenment? Is it, or does it mean that death is real? No, it also doesn't lead to enlightenment, because it's not dealing with ultimate reality, which is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. Even the moment of death, that's all it is, experience. You die, more experience. Is that okay? I think we have time for maybe one more short question. Peanut gallery. Um, yeah, I believe it's pronounced the Bodhisattva, the one who attains Nibbana but voluntarily chooses to... Bodhisattva. How do you pronounce it? Bodhisattva. Maybe. I don't know, I read it. All right. And it's the one who yeah, attains yeah, Nibbana a... but chooses to voluntarily re-enter... Right. No, not in our tradition. Enter, they don't enter into Nibbāna. They choose not to enter into Nirvana at all, ever, until they can realize the teachings for themselves. So, point being, they know that in the future, there's not going to be this, we don't have, they won't have this luxury, which we have right now. It's only been two and a half thousand years, right? That's not a long time. It's maybe two and a half thousand more years, they say. Um... That's a luxury that we have to have these teachings here. And they think, there's going to be times where there's no one like that. What if I were to put off my enlightenment uh, until such time as I can be the person to lead? Certain people do that. And you're welcome to try it. It's not easy. Well, the thing I was going to ask was, yes. well, since I think it'll still work, still work that person mm. with a positive intention and a positive karmic formation, yeah. I was wondering his rebirth compared uh -huh. to one who... Hasn't attained a sort of, sort of enlightenment, yeah. kind of like um, still attached. I was wondering if the rebirth, would yeah, yeah, yeah. there be any difference yeah. between the two? Okay. Well, you have, to, you have to be careful, because you're going to read stuff that's totally contradicting what I say. So you have to understand that, that you're going to say, but that monk in Long Island, he said this. <laughs> what I'm saying is not what all Buddhists believe, but it's what the, it's really pretty much the earliest 
texts say. Uh, so there's later, they are later texts that say differently, but um, their rebirth is not much different. Now, now there's the concept that a fully enlightened Buddha can see things very, very far into the future. So sometimes, like as happened with our Buddha, another Buddha will say, "You see that ascetic there lying in the mud? Sometime very, very far, four uncountable eons in the future, and one hundred thousand big bangs on top of that." He's going to become a Buddha. When he says that, it's for sure. There's a sense of that, but only because he can see in the future. So this is the this is whether this is true or not. This is what the texts say. It could be, I, I can't verify it. Yeah, the but why I was asking was that because I feel as though one who possibly rebirthed with the intention of spreading the teachings yeah. maybe would have encountered, like just his rebirth would have encountered yeah. experiences that led him to those teachings sooner. Okay, so I have, yes, and I haven't answered that, and, and so it, categorically it's not different except for that one example where a Buddha has, has, has determined it, because then it's categorically different. But even then, it's only because the Buddha knew. It's, he doesn't change and suddenly I, he's got a badge that says, I'm a Bodhisattva. Now, <laughs> intentions change you, especially strong intentions. So if you have the intention to become a Buddha, that's quite powerful. And the idea that that might... Um, any intention like that, like there is an intention of this one monk. He was he gave food to a Pacheka Buddha, a private Buddha, someone who becomes enlightened but doesn't teach. So he becomes enlightened all by himself in the middle of nowhere with no teacher, in some era where there's no Buddha, and then just passes away into enlightenment. So he gave him some food, which is a really good thing to do, and then he he made a determination. With this benefit of this, may I never hear the word nati, which means there are none, there is none. So he never heard, he, he was never without. The point is he wanted to never be without. And it's a, it's a funny story because in his last life, he runs out of cakes and he sends for some cakes and his, mom sa his mother says nati and sends that back and he says, well then bring me some nati cakes. And so she sends a, a, an empty platter back to him and she says, tell my son this is, this is what nati cakes mean. And the angels up in heaven stuff some angel food cake in, uh, and because they they, they 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 freak out, they're like, he can't, he he made a vow, and so they stuff it in there, and he gets these cakes and it's it's heavenly food, and he says, he storms back to his mother and says, you haven't loved, you never loved me before, until today you never loved me because you never brought me nutty cakes. Anyway, one of those funny Buddhist stories, and he says, from now on, all I will eat. But that's a very common thing, the idea that your your determination in a past life can affect the future. because yeah, I was just thinking, like, the fact that most of us here are pretty young, and I had someone else say, like, the fact that all of it, you stumbled upon it early, that must mean, yeah. like, you're to do some positive right. things, which I just thought, true or not, that sort of perspective could lead to some, like, positive results. And, and it's an important point, so what I want to say about that is, Everyone here should be making determinations. You should be you should be setting yourself on on a goal. So many people will often say, "May I become uh, enlightened?" With the chanting we do, a lot of it is, you know, nibbana pachayohotu. May this be for the purpose of nibbana. Or uh, uh, we have one in the Sri Lankan say, "Imina punyakame." bala samagama. May I not meet with any fools in the future. May I only meet with mindful people in the future. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Making these determinations can be very important. It's, it's one of the ten perfections. The ability to, the, the, 
the ability to make a determination and see it through. It's a quality of mind, the ability to say, I'm going to do that. Because most of us are I'm going to do that. Ice cream. It's for meditation house with your focus. Focus is one, but, and this is a specific kind of focus. The ability to uh, stay on track. Absolutely. Like the bodhisattva, when he, our bodhisattva, he made a determination. It's actually not a determination, it's uh, satcha, I think. He uh, put, the, put his bowl on the water and he said, if I'm going to become enlightened, may it float upstream. So he was so powerful uh, that he could make this determination and it actually floated upstream. Uh, that's what they say. Not quite the same thing. But yeah, absolutely will affect your your future. I agree. Just not categorically so. It's not magic. No, it's not magic, but I feel like the right intentions these like what right intentions, right thought, and that's the deterministic attitude. Which which can actually there's there, it can actually become a, it can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. For one, a person who is a bodhisattva can't attain nibbana. Right? Under, under a Buddha. So we have meditators who come who have made this determination and can't finish meditation courses. It's, this, isn't, this isn't theory. It happens. You see them and they get stuck. They get to a point and they just can't go any further. This, these people all went through it. This person is stuck there. Very clearly stuck because of that. Um, they say if you make... We have determinations in meditation. Determinations, may I attain the next path? So there's four paths. And if you do that, you can't enter into the earlier path. So then they get stuck and they can't get into the next path. So it's all mind games, really. All you have to do is change your mind and say, okay, I give that up. But it can get in your way and make you confused and doubt. And and so um, you have to be a little bit circumspect about them, meaning there is a power to them. And as with all power, comes responsibility. I know one guy who, who went crazy, a monk. He ended up slitting his wrist, setting himself on fire, and disrobing eventually. Um, because he was trying to do both. He was trying to be a bodhisattva and become and practice vipassana. So he would like he took the Visuddhi Magga, the Path of Purification book, and he was memorizing it. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine memorizing? Some monks do it, but memorizing it, as well as memorizing, memorizing Abhidharma Kosha, which is a Mahayana text. And he drove himself crazy. Started hearing voices and believing them, and they said, slit your wrist, you'll become a Buddha. Okay. Are we there yet? Any other questions? <laughs> so, one more question. Maybe there are no more. Hmm. Well, thank you all for coming. That was a quite profitable session, I think. I hope. Thank you very much, Bhante. Welcome. Okay. Mm, I think uh, it was an uh, mm, unforgettable occasion for everybody uh, with uh, Venerable Yutta Dhammo. Mm, so it was a good uh, <coughs> experience with meditation and a Dhamma discussion, uh, as well as uh, we will do um, 
tomorrow 3 p.m. we will start exactly 3 p.m. Mm, and you can introduce you can come with uh, at least one of your friends so whoever interested uh, for the Dhamma if you have uh, for the participation mm, thank you very much and we'll run out of room if we do that we can have enough room if they each bring one friend <laughs> everybody everybody bring half a friend that's it <laughs> and though I understand everybody may not be able to bring that's right <laughs> sometimes uh, it's okay this was great I certainly wasn't expecting such a full house of <laughs> yeah if it is weather is good uh, for tomorrow, we can do outside uh, in the backyard. That is how we expected. It'll be more focused on meditation, no? Right. More time. How many hours? Um, from three to six. Okay. Yeah, three to six. We can uh, divide uh, one hour for meditation and you know guided meditation as well as uh, dhamma talk and discussion. So um, we are grateful. To and uh, thank you very much for asking um, comprehensive questions <laughs> and uh, you got uh, um, answers. <coughs> Actually, Buddhism um, shows us to think. So, that these teachings uh, always not to believe, just to investigate and think and go ahead. So, <coughs> according to the discussion and uh, explanation of uh, Venerable Yutadhamma's uh, talk, you um, have got that idea. So, uh, thank you very much and we wish uh, Venerable Yutadhamma to for um, his uh, future and uh, his uh, Dhamma work leading to this Dhamma work for more and more in this world, uh, in this society. Uh, we can wish him, we can make a good wish for his uh, happiness uh, with Dhamma, long life and success of his spirituality as well as uh, for ultimate happiness. Thank you. Likewise to all of you. As well as you all, and by the power of uh, all these meritorious deeds, mm, and all kind of uh, good uh, activities, and merit what we acc accumulated, uh, you can share these merits with uh, all of your departed relatives uh, who have expected merits, and everybody who all beings who expected uh, merits, may they reduce in these merits and may they all and may we all attain ultimate bliss of Nibbana. So let's chant Metta Sutta. Are we still recording? Yeah, don't turn it on the track. Yeah, no, it will, but it's really wobbly. Never use it. Yeah. 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 Y
I know, but you need, you need a cheap one like that. Yeah, do you? Do it slowly. Do it slowly. I love that pan. That's gonna look great. Okay, so now we are we are going to chant. I'm attached to my posture. Now we are going to chant. Metta Sutta. Metta Sutta. Everybody's good health, success, happiness, long life, prosperity, security, and peace. In that aspiration, this time. Karaniya Matta Kusalena Yantang Santang Padang Abhisamecha Sakko Pujo Chasu Chucha Suvacho Chasa Mutu Anatimani Santo Sakko Chasu Barocha Abhakacho Chasa Allahu Kahuti Tindriyo Janipakocha Abhakambo Kulesu Ananugindo Kuddhang Samachare Kinchi Enavinyu Pareyo Pavadeyo Sukhino Vakemino Ontu Sambesatta Bhavantu Sukhitatta Eke Chipana Bhuttati Tasavatavarava Anavasesa Dinkavaye Mahantava Manjimarasaka Anukatula Dittavaye Vaadittaye Chadureva Sanjaya Bhutava Sambhave Siva Sambhe Sattva Bhavantu Sukhitatta Naparo Parangniko Beta Nati Manyeta Katta Chinang Kanchi Vyarosana Patika Sanya Nanya Manya Sadukha Michaya Tayataniyam Puttang Ayusai Kaputtamanurakke Evampisambhabhutesumanasambhavayeaparimanam Chasambhalokasmingmanasambhavayeaparimanam Adhochatiriyancha asambhadang avera asapata Tittancharangni sinnova sayanova yavatas vikatamindo Etang sating adityaya brahma metang viharang idama Dittin-chanupagamma-silavadasanena-sampanna Kamesu-inayagetang-ahitadukambhase-unareti-ti Etena-satcha-vajena-sambhati-hotu-sambhada Etena-satcha-vajena-sambhati-hotu-sambhada Tajabhumata devanagamahindika punyantang anumodhi 
Chirang rakantusa kasasananga kasatha jabumatha deva Mahidika punyantang anamoditpa Chirang rakantulo Kasasanam-hidang-me-nyati-nang-hotu-sukita-hontu-nyata-yo-hidang-me-nyati-nang-hotu-sukita-hontu-nyata-yo-hidang-me-nyati-nang-hotu-sukita-hontu-nyata-